Um, so as, as John Mark said, I lead a church with my wife, B, in central London, a place called King's Cross. The church is called KXE, not to be confused with KFC. They do chicken, we do God, slightly different. Um, and we've been tracking for some time together, and I know you know this, but you just have the most phenomenal pastors in John Mark and Tammy and the team, just unbelievable people. And, and it's embarrassing when John Mark says that stuff because I'm like, well, we're following you and if you're following us, then we're gonna be going around in circles and God, please help us. But we've learned so much about being intentional about practicing the way of Jesus, like creating patterns of discipleship that help us be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do the stuff that Jesus did. So I wanna say a massive thank you to John Mark. You're an amazing friend, but more than that, um, ooh. Lovely, awkward round of applause. Yeah, there we go. Um, but more than that, a massive thank you to you guys. Um, being with you for the weekend, being at the men's retreat, your passion for Jesus, your hunger for the things of the Spirit, your longing to see kingdom breakthroughs in this city, it's inspiring to be around. Um, so thank you for your example. And um, before this service, um, we were downstairs in some sort of room, it felt like a dungeon, um, do, doing the podcast, This Cultural Moment. Anyone been listening to that, that podcast with, um, okay, four of you. And it's, it, it's an amazing podcast with, with John Mark and Mark Sayers. And, and, and John Mark does his just unbelievable job at being phenomenally articulate on the Bible and, and culture. And then Mark Sayers just has the most unbelievable mind and starts you know, quoting Lebanese theologians that none of us have heard of, and people in Lebanon haven't even heard of these theologians. Um, but, but he's read something, it's still in his mind. He begins to speak out what's happening in the culture around us. And, and I had no idea why I was in the room, and then it dawned on me, I'm in the room, and I'm part of this podcast because of the British accent, right? Because <laughs> sometimes these podcasts, you know, the British accent just adds a little bit of sophistication, a bit of gravitas. So I had nothing intelligent to say but the way I said it was remarkable. <laughs> and you know this, that when Brits come to the US, we just play up the accent. So they were asking me questions about prayer, you know, what do you think about prayer? And I would just play up the accent, well, prayer is where the battle is won. <laughs> and, um, Hopefully you'll love it on the podcast. Okay, so I want to I want to teach about faith. One of the things we were speaking about downstairs was essentially this cultural moment we find ourselves in is that there's vulnerability everywhere. There's anxiety everywhere. There's political fragility and vulnerability. We see it in the institutions that were part of the bedrock of our, our culture. There's vulnerability, fragility, weakness everywhere. And you see it in the church too. Like in the UK, the church is hemorrhaging, particularly millennials, and people are freaking out. And yet there's this sense that God's up to something. That just at this point of weakness that God might be doing something remarkable, taking the weak things to shame the strong, the foolish things to shame the wise, that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And this feels like a threshold moment when the church recognizes that, that humanly speaking, it seems crazy that we could be part of something that shapes the culture around us, and yet we sense God might be doing exactly that. This feels like a threshold moment. And in threshold moments, when you come to the end of your resources, the end of yourself, and you turn to God, his power breaks in. They're threshold moments, they're defining moments, and I think the church in the West is at one of those moments. Um, so I want to read you, my PA, she's very prophetic, she's called Emma, 
And she just wrote down what she sensed God was stirring for the church in London, the church at KXC, and I think it's true for the church in Portland. Um, and I just want to read it out. This is what a threshold moment looks like. It's terrifying at one level, and it's super exciting. She writes this, threshold moments are equally beautiful and terrifying. They have the capacity to make or break the vision. As you stand on the cusp of everything you've ever dared hope for, you survey the land that now lies before you, your eyes tracing the intricate shapes that settle on the horizon. Too good to imagine. Now, just as I'm reading this, what are the big dreams stirring in your hearts? Try and imagine them as I read this out. This is what's been stirring for so long. This has been the cry of your heart for years, hidden deep down, but now here it is, that first glimpse of dream turned reality within reach, right before your very eyes, so nearly there. And as you stand there at the threshold of everything you've ever dared dream about with that cocktail of excitement and fear rising in equal measure, that other voice kicks in. The one that gently tells you to step back from the threshold it whispers to you that passing through that door will have its costs. It's too good to be true. Or even worse, what lies in front of you is all mirage, and you'd be foolish to walk through. It will disappear as soon as you enter. It's better to survey the land from the doorway, to distance yourself from it just in case, to stand at the threshold just watching. It's better to quietly let the dream die now, before sacrifices are made, bridges are burned, and there's no safe way back. Threshold moments have power. Many see them as the end of a long journey. They finally glimpse what their hearts have longed for, but they stop, exhausted, and find themselves settling in the doorway to all they've hoped for, never actually crossing through and taking hold of it. Tired and exhausted, they find contentment in the reasoning that they made it this far, that they can see it from a distance. But the truth is that these threshold moments are just the start of the adventure. They're only just the beginning. So step in, take courage, and move forward. You've been called for such a time as this. And I think that is, that's what the Lord's stirring in this church. You need to know Bridgetown. Like, step in. Take courage. You've been called for the sake of this city for such a time as this. This is the moment for us to turn to God in the midst of our weakness and ask him to give us the gift of faith, to fan into flame the gift of faith. So I want to talk about faith, and a, a good place to start is maybe Hebrews 11. And the writer of Hebrews opens up this chapter defining faith for us. This is what it says, verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now if you look around your community, you look around your workplace, you look around this city, what do you see? Like humanly speaking, what do you see? And I'm sure there's lots of great stuff and creativity and average coffee and, and all this other stuff. There's lots you can see, but I, I bet the first thing you often see is pain and disappointment, and poverty, and people, people that are suffering and caught up in cycles of, of addiction. We often see just the brokenness all around us, but faith is a whole different way of seeing. It's seeing from God's perspective. It, it's seeing this future breaking in upon us. What do we hope for? If you've read the scriptures, you know the end of the story, that God's going to return. Heaven and earth will become one, and at that point, there'll be no death, no grief, no crying, no pain. All things will be restored to how they were meant to be in the beginning. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're living for. That's what we're hoping for. And faith is seeing that reality and the possibility of that reality breaking into the here and now. 
It's assurance about what we do not see. And then the writer just goes through the story of the Old Testament making one simple point, and hopefully you can see the point. But they just go through the list, and repetition is our teacher here, that by faith, Abel did what he did, and by faith, Enoch did what he did. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham had loads of kids, and by faith, Sarah got in on the action. And by faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses did what he did. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. By faith, the prostitute Rahab did what she did. She helped some spies, by the way. I don't think the other stuff she did by faith. But you get the point. It's a simple message that every Everything happened by faith. That they could see that God was on a mission to make all things new, and they stepped into that story by faith. And then the writer continues, and I love this description. Having just told this epic story, what more shall I say? I don't even have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David, Samuel, and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Don't you just love that? Whose weakness was turned to strength. This isn't a list of the heroes of the faith, the men and women that were strong and confident in self. No, the writer makes the point. They were weak, they were vulnerable, they were broken, they had doubts, but their weakness was turned to strength. They were ordinary people that caught up, got caught up in an extraordinary story of God on the move. And then it goes on, verse 35, women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sword in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground, and hit the pause button there. Again, don't you love the honesty of this chapter? that so often when we tell the stories of what God's doing in our churches, we just give the edited highlights. You know, at the end of the year, we make these lovely videos and we just put them out on social media. Look how amazing this church is. And we just give the success stories, the breakthrough stories. This group of people, they came to faith and we started this compassion ministry and this business has got off the ground and look at all these things that are happening. And obviously that's amazing and we wanna celebrate the hand of God at work. And yet we know that we live in the tension of the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is here in part, and yet we await the full arrival of the kingdom of God when Christ returns. And in between, we live in that tension. So we celebrate breakthroughs, but we acknowledge that there's pain, and that there's suffering, and that there's prayers that haven't been answered. And the writer of this chapter is making that point, like we experience both. And in verse 39, they continue, all of these were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. We join in this story. Like God's weaving this beautiful redemptive tapestry. He's on a mission to make all things new, and we participate in this story by faith. Not by human gifting or human strength or confidence in self, confidence in God. So I want to take us on a learning journey, Um, and we're going to learn from the Jewish community as they journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, and the question we're going to try and answer is, why does this two-week journey take 40 years? Has anyone been to Egypt, a holiday in Egypt? Not many, or anyone. Okay, so 
If you were to go to Egypt and you were going to try and retrace the steps of the Jewish people as they make this journey, and you were going to hire a camel, and you're going to do it on a camelback, and, and you wanted to take your time, and you wanted to stop off and see the sights and do the touristy thing, two weeks would be more than enough. Be more than enough. So why does a two-week journey take 40 years? And I think in that, we might discover some clues as to how we can become men and women of faith. And there's three things that I, I, as I read the story, want to pick out, that there's essentially a failure to trust in God's power from the Jewish community, a failure to trust in God's provision at key moments in the story, and a failure to chase after his presence. And we want to learn from their mistakes, um, don't we? So... Um, let's just recap the story. Many will be familiar with the story. Um, they journey from Egypt, and they have that amazing moment as the waters part, and they walk through the Red Sea on dry land, um, and then the waters crash in on the Egyptian army, wiping out the most powerful army on the planet at that time, and after 400 years of slavery, they're finally free. Let's just try and emotionally engage in that moment. Like, Slavery is all you've ever known, generational slavery, um, and suddenly you're free. And you look across the, the Red Sea, and you're like, oh my goodness, what, what has God just done? Imagine the high fives, the chest bumping, the fist bumping. Um, Miriam, she's like, we just need to celebrate, and she finds a tambourine, and she would, you know, she did what any one of us would have done. She just starts slapping her thigh, and they start singing, they start celebrating. It's an incredible moment out of Egypt, through the waters, into the wilderness, and then they have another climactic moment at Mount Sinai, where God enters into a covenant relationship with his people um, and essentially gives them the Torah, the Ten Commandments, which is a pathway to human flourishing. God says that we're going to be wedded together now, and here's some guidelines so that you can thrive. That's what the Ten Commandments are essentially about, guidelines for flourishing. The first three are about safeguarding your relationship with God. Because when that goes, everything else falls apart. So you need to stay really close to God. But then there's other great wisdom. Like if you want to thrive as a community, like maybe don't kill each other. That would be like helpful. Um, secondly, if you really want to thrive, then maybe don't sleep with each other's husbands and wives. Because that tears apart families, it tears apart communities. And maybe, maybe just a, a thought, don't lie. And, and maybe don't steal, and don't cover your neighbor's possessions, and, and maybe once a week have a really good rest. These are guidelines for human flourishing, because God wants his people to thrive and live under his blessing. Then they continue the journey, and, and God provides manna, heaven's bread, to sustain them on the adventure. And eventually, the baton's handed on to Joshua, who leads the people into the promised land where they can prosper. That's the story, right? A summary of the story. And one of the beautiful things, if you read Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, Matthew structures his account around this story. Um, so just to make it really clear, if you open up, you begin to read the story of the birth of Jesus, that Herod tries to kill this baby because he's threatened by this king of the Jews. So Mary and Joseph take Jesus into hiding, and when it's safe to return in Matthew 2, it says that Jesus came out of Egypt. Turn the page, Matthew 3. Um, Jesus then passes through the waters of baptism. Turn the page to Matthew 4. Jesus enters the wilderness for 40 days, representing the 40 years the Jewish community spent there. Now, anyone reading this story that's aware of the Exodus narrative is picking up on the clues, right? Hang on a minute. He came out of Egypt, through the waters, into the wilderness. Something's going on here. Something's going on here. Turn the page. Jesus ascends the mountain to give the sermon on the 
Great reading. The Sermon on the Mount, which is a new pathway to blessing, right? That basically mirroring Moses ascending Mount Sinai, Jesus is the new Moses, the second Moses, leading a second exodus. So Jesus ascends the mountain and gives a new pathway to human flourishing. And notice the language. If the Torah was a pathway to blessing, Jesus says, well, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those that mourn, and blessed are the meek, and blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, and blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are the persecuted. There's a new pathway to blessing. And it's not just Torah obedience anymore. It's relationship with me, the law giver. Relationship with me will lead you to fullness of life, the fullness of life you were made for. And if you keep reading through the story, you'll get to Matthew 14, where the disciples steal a kid's lunch and, and give it to Jesus and say, look, we need to feed the crowd. And I mean, in those days, they'd have only counted the men in the crowd. So scholars suggest that maybe the crowd was like near 15,000 strong. Um, and Jesus prays over this lunch, um, and the food is multiplied and feeds 15,000 people. That's incredible, right? That's supernatural provision. It's bread from heaven. The point that Matthew's trying to make as he follows through the story of Jesus is that Jesus is leading us towards the new creation, and that new creation is birthed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Like, this is the story we live in, and the story we live in is the story we live out. Like God's on a mission to make all things new. So how do we participate in this story of the new creation breaking in upon us here in Portland? And the answer is by faith. By faith, trusting that God's powerful enough to usher in this new future into the present. So we believe that God's powerful, and yet if we're being really honest, there's moments where in our brokenness we just begin to doubt. The doubts kick in. And basically, we begin to think, well, I, I do believe God's powerful, and I think he's probably powerful enough for that person, and he's powerful enough for that individual, to the person on my left and the person on my right, but like what I'm going through, I don't think he's powerful enough for me to liberate me, to heal me, to lead me into this future that God's marked out for me. I don't think God's powerful enough for me. And I just want to tell you, he's powerful enough for you. He is all powerful. I want to make this point by I'm telling you about the 10 plagues. Have you read the 10 plagues? Like, it's just weird reading, isn't it? I mean, it's fun, it's bizarre. I wanna try and explain what's happening in the plagues. Now, to understand the 10 plagues, you need to know that Egyptian culture, like most ancient Near Eastern cultures, was polytheistic. So the Jews were monotheists, they believed in one God who ruled over all. The Egyptians were polytheists, so they had a pantheon of God, loads of different gods, that reigned over different spheres of life. So you'd have the God of the moon, and the God of the sun, and the God of the stars, and the God of the waters, and the God of the land, and the God of agriculture, and the God of war, and the God of your family, and the God of your sex life, and the God of your work life, and all that kind of stuff. And, and to experience favor in the earthly realm, you'd have to appease the gods in the heavenly realm. You'd have to make certain sacrifices, live in a certain way, make sure these gods were really happy. And if they were happy, you would experience peace and favor in the earthly realm. An exhausting way to live. But for God to liberate the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt, he has to overcome these Egyptian gods that are ruling over them. This is what the 10 plagues are about. So let me read a South African theologian, Derek Morphew, who talks about what's happening in these plagues. So the Nile was believed to be the sacred abode of the Nile god, Happy. In the first plague, the Nile god died. Happy turned to blood. Now that's a panic moment, right? When the Nile turns to blood, that means your water supply, gone. 
Um, but more than just losing your water supply, which would have been terrifying, one of your key gods that's ruling over you has been exterminated. The people would have been in panic, like, what is happening? Don't worry, it gets far worse. In the second plague, frogs, the symbol of a key goddess of fertility, multiplied beyond control. In the fifth plague, the livestock began to die. The bull was sacred to Apis, cows to Isis, the ram to Ammon. The representation of three Egyptian gods were exterminated. This is panic moment, your water supply's dried up, and now your food supply's been wiped out. Like, what, what are we going to eat? But more than that, our gods are being overpowered. Like, what is happening? Don't worry, it gets way worse. In the seventh plague, heaven, the home of the gods, was cast into disarray. One of the highest deities in Egypt was Ra, the sun god. In the ninth plague, Ra was blotted out. Now just again, imagine the moment where you plummet, you plummet into darkness, and darkness always exaggerates threat. So you're beginning to like, oh my goodness, like what is happening all around us? We can't see anymore, but more than that, our gods are being overpowered. Don't worry, it gets worse. Probably the most important in Egyptian belief was the fact that Pharaoh and his firstborn were held to be of divine conception. This was the basis of his authority. The death of Pharaoh's firstborn in the 10th plague represented the death of a deity. Like one by one, God overpowers all of the Egyptian gods to the point where the Jewish community can walk out of Egypt. They don't even need to raise a finger. They don't need to put up a fight because God's done everything to liberate them and set them free. And that's before you even get to the Red Sea, where the waters part and you walk through on dry land and you see the most powerful army on the planet wiped out in a heartbeat and you taste freedom, you celebrate, and your mind must have been thinking, our God is all-powerful, all-powerful. He's liberated us, he's set us free, he's good. Nothing can stand in his way. And yet within a few days... If you read the story, they're grumbling in the wilderness and they're saying to Moses, hang on a minute, we think we'd quite like to go back to Egypt because we're in the wilderness now and there's no food and there's no water and we're just not sure this Yahweh God is powerful enough to provide for us in the desert. And you're like, what? Yeah, ten plagues. Like the Red Sea, the Egyptian army, what do you mean he's not powerful enough to provide a snack in the wilderness? He can provide a snack and a glass of water. Absolutely, he can but we can't point the finger, can we? Because we know we're exactly the same. That we've had moments in our own lives where God's broken in and brought freedom and provided for our needs and brought healing and whatever else. And yet, there's moments where we're like, I'm just not sure he's powerful enough for this work situation, for this relationship that's gone wrong. I'm just not sure he's powerful enough for this addiction that I'm struggling with. I, I just, I don't think he's powerful enough for me. And I, I want to break that lie. He's powerful enough for you. Whatever you are going through, he is powerful enough for you. There's two journeys. N.T. Wright makes this point, a New Testament scholar from, from Britain. He makes this point that there's two journeys in this Exodus narrative, the journey out of slavery and the journey out of the mindset of slavery. So the journey out of Egypt and the journey of getting Egypt out of them. Um, and the first journey is really quick, and I've heard John Mark um, talk about this, that freedom can happen very swiftly. Like, God breaks in, sets us free, but maturity takes a very long time. Have you noticed that in this story? Like, parting of the sea, like, free, bam, there you go. And the journey towards maturity takes 40 years. That's the journey out of the mindset of slavery. And, um, and essentially, the Jewish community are coming from this background of horrific abuse, physical, mental abuse, 
under Pharaoh. And every time in the story that God comes near to the people, they flinch expecting to get hit because that was life in Egypt. And every time God draws close to display his love and affection, they just flinch. And one of the key messages in the Exodus narrative is is God saying to his people, I'm not like Pharaoh. Like, I I, want to break that perception of what I'm like. I'm not like Pharaoh. I'm a good, good father, and you can trust me, and I will provide for you. So I want to look at the, the second journey then. How do we journey out of the mindset of slavery, out of the victim mindset? And we're going to do a gear change from theology to psychology. I want to tell you about Albert Ellis. Now, just as a disclaimer, I've studied theology. I have a degree in theology. I've studied next to no psychology. Um, is that going to stop me speaking right now as if I'm an expert? Absolutely not. Um, so I want to tell you about psychology um, from this article I once read a long time ago. Um, Albert Ellis was um, the father of the rational emotive behavioral therapy movement, one of the leading thinkers in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And his breakthrough idea, his central idea, is that if you want to understand someone's behavior in the world, how they act, then you need to understand the core beliefs that drive the behavior. And if you want to understand the core beliefs that drive the behavior, you need to look at their story and their upbringing and the key stages of of childhood development. What, What went on that shaped their beliefs, that shaped their behavior? And this became known as the ABC of CBT, which has a lovely ring to it, I think you'll agree. Um, So the ABC of CBT basically says there's an activating event which creates beliefs, which creates consequences in behavior, which is why when you go and see a therapist, perhaps the first question they'll ask you is, where is it hurting? Or tell me your story. And as they listen to the story, they're trying to piece together what are the activating events? And what are the beliefs that crept in, and how are those beliefs driving the behavior? And examples of of an ABC might be, let's say at the age of four or five, your mum and dad separated, and eventually they were divorced. Um, And no one sat you down as a kid and said, can we just explain what's happened? Um, And without that help, you came to conclusions. And the conclusion was that I was a bit of a naughty boy, a bit of a naughty girl, and that created tension in my mum and dad's marriage, and eventually they separated, but it got worse, it pulled them apart, and eventually they divorced, and essentially it was my fault. Because no one sat them down to say, it's not your fault, and it wasn't your fault. So they came to that conclusion, and, and irrational beliefs crept in that if, if I get too close to people, relationships will fall apart, and that has consequences in behavior, like really low self-esteem and a, a withdrawn approach to life. Like, my wife and I pastored a number of people with that story. Or imagine another one that um, you fell in love, your first love, and that's an adrenaline rush, really fun, right? But imagine the first time you fell in love, your heart got screwed over, and your heart was broken, and maybe your partner went off with your best friend, something horrific happened, um, and you basically developed the mindset of, I, I can't give my heart again. Because if I give my heart again and it gets broken, I don't think I'll bounce back a second time. I think that will be game over. So basically, you begin to hold romantic interests um, at a distance, but it always bleeds into other relationships. So you begin to hold people at a distance. Maybe the very people that might be part of your healing, you're holding at a distance. And it's robbing you of fullness of life. We all have ABCs at work in our life, robbing us of the fullness we were made for. Let me just give you an example of one in my life. Um, I have a a phobia of rats. Now, I can tell the story, I can joke about it because it's not really a big deal in my life right now. Um, But when I was a kid, it was a big deal. 
it was a big deal. I remember like as a probably seven, eight, nine-year-old, every night, every night before bed, um, I would panic that there would be rats. I would look under my bed. Um, I would look in the cupboards. I would look around the room. And once I was convinced there were no rats in the room, I'd close the door so that nothing could get in. I would then wrap myself in my duvet in bed so there were no access points to my body apart from my face. So if I was going to get bitten, I was going to get bitten in the face. Did that create anxiety? Absolutely it did. <laughs> Very much so. Um, and... Under certain pressure moments in my life, um, the phobia would get worse during exams, for example. I remember being um, at university studying maths and philosophy um, and studying for my finals, and I lived in this like really run-down student place, student flat, um, and I thought I could hear rats in the roof. I could hear scratching. So I'm trying to revise for my exams, but I can't sleep at night because I'm terrified that there's rodents around. Um, so I, I sleep badly. I wake up. I can't concentrate because I'm completely knackered and tired, and, and I'm anxious, and I spiral into this bad place, and it sucks, right? And you know it's irrational, and yet when you've got a phobia at work, you just can't seem to overcome it. Um, my friends weren't particularly sensitive to this phobia, so they'd often send me messages with information they thought would help me. This was one. They say you're never more than six feet away from a rat. <laughs> In London, that is. I mean, terrifying, hey? And one friend sent me this message. message you, know, you know that rats multiply so quickly that in 18 months, two rats could have over a million descendants. Like, critical need-to-know information if you have a phobia. Um, another mate sent me this online publication. Um, Nest of giant rats discovered who are growing huge through cannibalism. They're eating each other. So not only are they growing numerically, they're growing in size. I was like, thank you so much for that message. It's so good to know. So what's the activating event? When did this begin? So I'm going to take you back to when I was three years old. I had a hamster, and the hamster bit me. That's not the activating event, by the way. That's just a warm-up to the activating event. That hamster eventually died. Can't really remember how and don't really care. Um, <laughs> but mum and dad thought it would be good to, to get me another hamster. So a few months later, they, they buy me a hamster, and the hamster was known as Toffee, and I fell in love with Toffee until something happened. So I went to bed one night, and then in the middle of the night, I woke up, and I just felt this scratching sensation on my chest. I was like, oh, what, what's this, what's this? I reach for the light, turn the light on, and then I see what I think is a rat on my chest, like perched upright with those black beady eyes looking into my soul and not liking what it was seeing. And, and I kind of hit the rat off me like, Ugh! and I, I jump out of bed, adrenaline's coursing through my veins. I'm trying to find this horrible rat, and then I see it's my hamster toffee but I feel totally betrayed. It's limping back towards its cage. It got out somehow. So I grab Toffee, I put it in the cage, I slam the door shut, and over the next three days, I starve it to death. That's a joke, by the way. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. <laughs> I promise you, I did not do that. But the level of compassion in this place is remarkable. <laughs> I've told that story a few times. Never have I had the <gasps> Anyway, that was the activating event. That was the activating event. And after that, I began to get really anxious. And it affected my sleep. 
and under pressure, it robbed me of peace. It created these crazy beliefs that rats were out to get me, had consequences in my behavior. So what is the remedy? Well, Albert Ellis would say this, that you need to deconstruct the irrational beliefs. You name the activating event, you figure out what are the irrational beliefs, and then you deconstruct them. So you go and see a therapist, and they'll ask you questions to help you process this. For example, Pete, like, let's just think about rats for a moment. How much bigger are you than a rat? And I don't know the answer. We're like, mm, 30, 40 times. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. And, you know, you're scared of the rat, but how much more do you think the rat is scared of you? If you're 40 times bigger and you're like, yeah, good point. Yeah, they must be terrified. Um, and what harm could a rat actually do? To which my response was, have you heard of the plague? Like the Black Death. <laughs> like potentially 200 million people across Europe affected by the plague. Like they can do some serious damage. Yeah, yeah, that was a long time ago. What, what damage could they do now? It's like, yeah, good point. Anyway, they help you deconstruct irrational beliefs, replace them with rational beliefs, and that begins to shift your behavior. And if you've had CBT, and I'm guessing a number in the room will have, will have used CBT, you'll know that it's an amazing tool. It's a really helpful tool. And yet, it's not enough. It's not enough. CBT will not lead you to the wide open space you are made for. So there has to be better news than CBT, however good CBT is. And I'm here to tell you, there's better news than CBT. You ready for the better news? It's the news of the gospel. That God provides a new activating event. It's called the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus begins to invite us into this new story, saying if you live in this story, you'll live out this story. It will shape your beliefs that will change your behavior when you realize that, that I lived for you and I died for you and I rose to bring you to life and that you are now a new creation in me, that you're chosen, loved, adopted, forgiven, free and called. And you're like, wow, all of these things are now true of me. And those beliefs lead you to a wide open space, expansive living in the kingdom of God. So we need to be a people that live in that story, the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus on a mission to make all things new. And Portland's like London, a global city, and you're being bombarded with stories. Like advertising in your workplace. There are practices that are drawing you into different worldviews, different stories, and you need to make sure that you're finding your identity, your belonging, your purpose, your hope in this story and this story alone, because this is the story that will lead you to life. So we need to be a people that live in the story of God and live out the story of God, and when you live in the story of God, you know what happens? You begin to dream bigger dreams. You begin to dream bigger dreams. You're like, oh my goodness, God is with me. If God is with me and for me, who could be against me? Martin Luther King said this. He said, dream things with God so big they're doomed to failure unless God is in them. Like, can I encourage you? Like, wh whatever your dreams are for kingdom activity in Portland, for culture being transformed, your communities being transformed, the lives of your friends being transformed, whatever the dreams are, go big. Dream bigger. Because you bring those dreams to a God who can do immeasurably more than all you could ever ask for or imagine according to his power at work within you. A friend of mine, Carl Martin, leads a church in Edinburgh, says this, says, if your vision isn't beyond you, then it's dependent on you and restricted by you and probably displeasing to God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We need to dream big dreams for the sake of this city, for the sake of the surrounding culture. So we have faith 
in God's power. Secondly, we are to be a people that put our faith in God's provision. Like, how does he lead people from Egypt to the promised land? And the answer is he provides for them, manna from heaven to sustain them on the journey. Now, you and I, we know this, that we are all a bundle of needs. We wake up each morning, and there's just hundreds of different needs at work within us. Like, there are physical needs and emotional needs and spiritual needs and sexual needs and financial needs and relational needs and mental needs. There's just so many different needs and desires at work within us. And the big question is, where do you take those needs? Who are you taking them to? Where do you think those needs will be satisfied and find fulfillment? This is what St. Augustine said. He famously said, God, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This was his experience, that when he took these needs, these desires deep within him to the wrong places, he experienced restlessness and anxiety and frustration. And when he took them to the God of the universe, he found peace. He found rest. C.S. Lewis um, said something similar. He said, idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. Like you take these big questions of identity, purpose, and belonging to the wrong places, thinking that success in your workplace will heal you, or that maybe marriage will define you and, and bring you to life. If you, if you take these questions to the wrong places, expect to get your heart broken and fully broken. And this is why Jesus taught his followers to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In Portland, as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Like all these needs within us, like give us all that we need. We, we bring these desires, these longings to you. Would you be the one that satisfies the desires of our heart? We bring them to you. Not gonna take them to work. Not gonna take them to friends or take them to an addiction. We're gonna bring them to you. You'll notice that it says on the screen, um, give us today tomorrow's bread. The Greek of, of the, the, the Lord's Prayer, that would be a closer translation. Give us today tomorrow's bread, which is a reference to the Exodus narrative, right? The day before the Sabbath, they'd collect food for that day and for the Sabbath day so that they could rest on the Sabbath. So when Jesus taught his followers to pray, give us today tomorrow's bread, it was a way of saying, I want you to pray in light of the future that's in store for you. Like you know the end of the story. When Christ returns, there'll be no death, no grief, no crying, no pain. All things will be restored to how they were meant to be in the beginning. So when you pray, I want you to pray for that reality to break into the here and now. In the Lord's Prayer, we're basically saying, God, can you just give us a little foretaste of what's to come? Like We know there won't be sickness when you return, so we're asking that you'd give us a foretaste of that in the here and now as we pray for healing. We know we live in the tension of the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God, but would you break in and give us a sign of what's to come? And when we pray for freedom, we know that we'll be free when Christ returns. Lord, give us a foretaste of what's to come. In other words, we're a people that trust that God will provide for all of our needs. So it's worth asking the uncomfortable question, where are you taking your needs right now? Who are you turning to? Is your heart broken because of it? What would happen if you took those needs, the good desires and the ugly ones, if you took them all to Jesus? Maybe you'd experience peace and fullness of life. Final thing then, we need to be a people that have faith in God's presence to lead us forward. How do they get from Egypt to the promised land? The answer is there's a cloud by day and there's a fire by night that guide them on the journey. 
Notice God doesn't give them a map. Doesn't say to Moses, okay, I've just drawn up this map for you. You're here, Egypt, land of Canaan's over there. This is the journey you're going to make. That, that doesn't happen. It says, here's a cloud by day, a fire by night. Just keep really close to these manifestations of my presence, and my presence will lead you towards fullness. Notice the spirituality that emerges in that mindset. When you have a map, when you have a 10-year plan, you keep your head down and you follow and execute the plan. When you have a guide, you keep your head up and you follow the guide. So this is language we use at KXC, that God does not give us a map because he wants to be our guide. So you keep your head up. Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. So father, what are you doing today? Where are you moving in my workplace? What's the stuff that's exciting you? Show me what you're doing, and as you keep close to the presence of God, the presence of God will lead you towards fullness. I want to land with a story a story of my son, Ben. She's nine years old, but five or so years ago, at the age of four, he went through this kind of six to 12 month period that every night around three or four in the morning he'd wake up. Super annoying. And I would hear this voice, and the voice would go like this Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And it wasn't alarmed at all, there's no panic in the voice, which is why I ignored it. So, like, Daddy. <laughs> Daddy, and then eventually my wife, B would sort of hit me like, Ben just calling for you. And I'd be like, I know, but I'm stronger than he is. <laughs> and I will break his will. <laughs> Daddy. And I'd be like, eventually, I'd be like, okay, fine. So I'd run upstairs, and, and I was thinking maybe his duvet's fallen off, or maybe he's wet the bed. You know, that stuff sometimes happens. Um, but more often than not, it would just be, he'd say, Daddy, could you lie down with me? So I'd get into bed and, and lie down with him and just embrace him. And I'd be waiting for him to fall asleep, begging him to fall asleep very quickly. <laughs> and then after about 10 or 15 minutes, he would look at me and just say, you can go now. <laughs> what? I felt used. I felt totally used. What, did, what do you mean I can go now? So I'd be like, okay, fine. So I'd go downstairs and fall back to sleep and then wake up when they woke up in the morning. But it, it got me asking questions because it would happen every night for six months to, to a year. Like, why is he doing it? I started reading around it and some people were saying, well, maybe it's because at that time um, the imagination fires up and they begin to have nightmares. So I was like, maybe it's because of that. Um, and yet, he hardly ever spoke about nightmares. It happened once or twice. There's this one time where he said, Daddy, I think there's a monster under the bed. So I turned the lights on, looked under the bed. He'd be like, no, there's no monster under the bed. There's a couple of rats just over there, but there's no, <laughs> no monster under the bed. And there's this one time, I kid you not, he, he said, Daddy, I think there's a fox in the house. I think there's a fox in the house. And I obviously didn't search the whole house. I just said, look, I can guarantee you, apart from your mum, there isn't a fox in the house. <laughs> She's a fox, definitely. True story. <laughs> but most of the time it wasn't a nightmare. I was like, why is he doing it? And then I realized he just wanted to be with daddy. He just wanted to be with daddy because he felt most safe in my presence. And he found confidence in my presence. And I haven't told Ben's this, but when he's older, I'll tell him this. Those 10 to 15 minutes in that year, they were the best 10 minutes of my day. Best 10 minutes of my day. Loved it. Just loved being with him. And as I was lying down with him, I just felt God speaking that over me. Hey, Pete, you know those like times when we just hang out 
when you open up the scriptures and, and we just talk at the beginning of the day and sometimes it's 10 minutes and sometimes it's longer, but you, you know those moments? It's the best part of my day too because it's in my presence that you'll find peace and it's in my presence all those insecurities that drive you, they'll just begin to calm down and confidence will begin to emerge and faith will begin to emerge and my presence will lead you towards fullness. So spend as much time in my presence as possible. And that's what I want to say to you at Bridgetown. Like spend as much time as you can in the presence of Jesus. How are we going to see culture transformed, culture renewed? How are we going to see kingdom activity here in Portland? The answer isn't better programs. The answer isn't like better leaders being developed. The answer isn't more intelligent thinking around cultural engagement. All of that stuff is really important, right? The way we're going to see culture transformed is a move of the Spirit of God. It's a move of the Spirit of God. It's the people of God getting on their knees in the presence of God saying, Lord, would your kingdom come? We're asking for you to move in power. This is a threshold moment. We don't have what it takes. We feel weak. We feel vulnerable. We're struggling with addictions and dot, dot, dot. But we know that your power is made perfect in weakness. So we're getting on our knees and saying, Lord, would you come and move in power? All the other stuff's important. But the most important thing is to seek after the presence of God. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how we're going to see this city transformed. So why don't we stand?